0: Cascade Hoops Talk, Billy D. Join us on Twitter, Cascade Hoop Talk. Also, every day, get your NAI basketball news at CascadeHoopsTalk.com. CascadeHoopsTalk.com. Hey, we got a real treat today. Former NBA player Smush Parker. Uh, he grew up in Brooklyn, played basketball at Newtown High School in Queens. His jersey was recently retired at Newtown. After high school, he went to uh, the College of Southern Idaho, a school that uh, ha- is renowned for uh, a two-year college for basketball. He went to uh, Fordham, and out of school, he, he wasn't uh, drafted, but he uh, signed with, I think, originally Cleveland, went over to Europe for a bit, played in Greece, and then uh, the most famous part of his career then ensued as he signed with the Los Angeles Lakers, as a, an emergency guard, and he ended up starting for them. All 162 games over a two-year period, played in the backcourt with Kobe Bryant. Uh, unfortunately, that period of his career is best known for what some would call a feud, uh, whatever word you want to use, uh, disagreements with Kobe Bryant, when actually the real story of Smush Parker starting for two years under Phil Jackson is the fact that he did it by sheer determination and hard work, and that's what I admire. And he did something that people said he probably couldn't, and that's what we all should admire. Smush is uh, currently working to become a referee, and he also does clinics, free clinics for young people. Smush wants to inspire those that also may be in his situation where hard work is going to be the the pathway to better things in their life. It is called Smush Inspires. We'll probably do a show on that later. He also has a basketball. If you need a basketball, get The Rock and get the Smush Parker basketball. Anyway, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to Smush. He's a heck of a nice guy. And uh, his story to me was inspiring and I hope you find it inspiring as well. We'll begin in 30 seconds. Cascade Hoop Talk, Billy D. We're thrilled today. Uh, Smush Parker's joined us. Uh, he's uh, played all over the globe, played uh, for the L.A. Lakers. He uh, has a real interesting background. Smush, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's go back to uh, your days in New York. Uh, you and I were just talking about it. You grew up in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, yes, sir. When did you discover that you were a little bit better than most of the other guys?
1: Uh uh-huh um... Uh, to tell you the truth, I would say around 13, and the reason for that was because uh, that, was the, that was the year and the first time I actually played organized basketball. Up until I was 13, I was just playing in the streets of New York. I was playing in whatever gym that I followed my dad to, and I was playing, you know, with the local half-court kids, just shooting around, playing little three-on-threes, or 20, I don't know if you guys know what 21 in Utah is, but, you know, it's a one against everybody uh, kind of um, ordeal, you know, you have to score 21. You, you know, uh, it's twos and ones. Yeah, and whoever wants to play can play. So it's like one against everybody. Uh, that's 21. Uh, Utah is the same concept. It's just games 100 and uh, it's, it goes by five. So up until I was 13, I had never played organized basketball Never was on a team never played in a league with referees, but it was then when I started playing with kids my own age in an organized uh, setting that I realized that the 13 year olds that were or the 13 year olds period that I was playing against weren't as good as I was
0: I, I want to ask you about 21 because you grew up on the east Coast. I grew up out in the West Coast. when we played okay. 21 what you did is you shot a free throw and then you uh, made that you followed it up with a lay in and if you you kept going until you you missed and then whoever hit okay. 21 21 first one that's no, a different game no that's game. a different
1: 21 yeah it's a different game so our 21 is like a one on a one on one but it's one on whoever wants to play so if five guys are in the in the gym shooting half court and they want to play 21 it's you against five other players and now you have to you have to score to get to the free throw line so if you get the ball you go on one against five you score, you score a basket, whether well, it's a jump shot or a layup, that's two points. Then you go to the free throw line and you have a chance to shoot for one point. If you make three in a row, then you get the ball back and you go up against the five guys again to score the two points.
0: This is exactly, Smush, why every time I go by a, a schoolyard and see it empty on a sunny day, it makes me sad. Uh, because oh, man. We, uh, we, you know, kids making up your own games or making up the games that were passed on to you, whether it was basketball or baseball or whatever. I mean, that I just think a lot of kids are missing out. So you, you grew a up in. Of, per, go ahead, Bush. I'm going. Sorry.
1: No, I was, I was, I was, I was in agreement with you. A lot of kids are missing out on uh, just playing in the streets like we did back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I don't know what you guys did in the 70s. I don't know how old you are. I'm not that old. But I know in my era. My generation, playing in the streets was essential to, you know, just being a kid. And you don't see that much anymore.
0: Yeah, and the, the less skills you had, the more you had to go up to the school and shoot because you wanted to be good enough that somebody pick you. <laughs>
1: yes,
0: sir. <laughs> you tr- trust me, I was on that end of it. And you know what? Even in the 70s, the ball was round. I can attest to that, Swoosh. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit older than you. So then you, uh, you, you're you you a Brooklyn guy, but you end up going to school in uh, Queens, Yes, sir. You know, how did that happen? How did you end up in Newtown?
1: Newtown High School in Elmhurst, New York, Queens. Um, it's, that has an interesting story. Um, I actually started out my high school uh, as a ninth grader. because My junior high school at the time uh, had a ninth grade. So I, I entered high school as a ninth grader, and I actually went to Washington Urban for art and got accepted to Washington Urban, which is in Manhattan, for art and because i could play basketball so well a, guru, a basketball guru by the name of rodney Park in relation discovered me and was like you know what we need to put you into a better basketball program but at the time i didn't have i have i didn't have the greatest grades so uh, another public school instead of like a catholic school was going to be suffice so uh, one of the top you know uh, public school uh, basketball programs here in, in New York City was uh, Newtown High School, and I transferred schools midway through my uh, my sophomore my sophomore year.
0: So you had a pretty good high school career, I'm assuming, because you ended up at uh, this is a school we New were town. talking about this before I started recording. But uh, College of Southern Idaho, a lot of people on the East Coast probably don't know that there that's a renowned basketball program. So you you went there. What was that experience playing at Southern Idaho like?
1: Man, that was uh, definitely an eye opener. <laughs> it was a, definitely a culture shot, but um, the, the, the decision for me to go that way was part of the reason why it was a culture shot. I wanted something new. I wanted a, a new experience, and actually, that mindset was uh, was shaped who I am today, because I've traveled to over you know thirty countries, played on uh, played overseas for ten years but I wanted a new experience outside of New York City, so I decided to go to a college of Southern Idaho and college of Southern Idaho in Idaho.
0: When you left Southern Idaho, then you entered the draft, you got undrafted, uh, and then you then you signed on with the Cavaliers, and that's where the real real fun began because, uh, boy, you went on the ultimate basketball road okay. trip. So where is the very yes, first play, place that you played professional basketball?
1: So the very first place that I played professional basketball, I would say, was Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, okay. Cleveland Cavaliers.
0: And then you played there for uh, one season, was it?
1: One season before the LeBron era.
0: You know, I'm real curious about your time over, overseas because then you, you went over and you played in in Greece. You talked about a culture <laughs> shock going to southern Idaho. What was it like going to Greece to play basketball?
1: Oh, wow, man, Greece was uh, incredible. If I had it my way, I would have retired in Greece. Basketball, basketball is still basketball out there. The fans are so passionate about their sports. It was again an incredible experience on both uh, the basketball side and just the life experience side. Uh, Greece is one of those places where you can uh, go on vacation and enjoy, whether you want to enjoy the history of the Greeks or you just want to go and you know relax on uh, one of the one of one of their many beaches.
0: What about the difference in the game? Were you, was there any notable in the differences in the game?
1: Yeah, there's uh the rules are a little different. The game was uh, not as athletic, but um, it was more half court setting, half court plays, backdoor cuts, and in a game like that, it could seem it's a little bit more physical than an NBA setting. Uh, they allow certain things, certain. They allow certain hand checks and bumps and uh pushes and grabs and holds uh that they they don't they, they don't allow in the NBA.
0: A little bit different body contact, but as you said, I mean basketball is basketball. Is that pretty much what you found?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basketball is basketball. If you can play basketball, if you're a competitor, you know, you always uh you know, uh just find a way to just enjoy the game.
0: You you had some success in Greece. That team won the, the Greek Basketball Cup. Uh, kind of paved the way for you to come back to the NBA, play uh, a little bit for the Pistons and the Suns. What was it a, a year or so? You were back before you got with the yeah.
1: Lakers. Yeah, I was back for uh, for one year. You know, like you said, I played a stint with uh, the Detroit Pistons and the Phoenix Suns. Had you know uh, uh, some time, spent some time down in the NBDL. Uh, for a few games during that season also Um, but the very next season like you said you know I played uh, I I was able to uh, earn my spot with the LA Lakers
0: and that was the uh, 2005 season most basketball experts thought probably Aaron McKee would get that starting job you you get that starting job on opening day you are very efficient with the basketball Scored 20 points a game the first few games and it sounds to me from everything I've read he kinda of won over Phil Jackson's heart and he said he's my point guard. Oh what did that feel like starting for the Lakers?
1: Man, you know, uh it really didn't set in. It really didn't set in. I can't I I can't really put my finger on when it set in uh, for me that I was actually starting for the Lakers because it was there was one, there was never a discussion of, you know, Smush so is gonna be our starting point guard. Um, there was no no indication that I was going to be the starting point guard. Like you said, they brought in Aaron McKee. We thought that Aaron McKee was going to be the starting point guard. You know, they also had Sasha Bujic at the time who was, uh, you know, on their roster who uh, was supposed, who was slated to be their backup. I was just there to, you know, kind of fill a third spot. But I guess, you know, with my hard work and uh, my uh, just relentless play out there on the court during the preseason, like you said, uh uh, kind of went over Phil Jackson's heart and the very first I didn't start the whole preseason by the way okay. The very first game of the season the very first game of the season um, You know right before you know, we're, we're pre-gaming, you know, we're getting our minds right for the game Phil Jackson walks into the locker room and he walked up to me and says oh, yeah, you're starting tonight <laughs> So I didn't <laughs> that doubt, you know, I didn't really have a time to like really digest it uh, prepare for it, really um you know, just take it all in. I was just kind of, you know, doning into that, that spot. And you know what? It wasn't like, and, and again, when I say I didn't get a chance to really, it didn't set it, I wasn't on a guaranteed contract. They could have released me at any time. So my mindset was, uh, I'm i starting, yes, but well, I could still be released. I need to keep continue to perform on a night-to-night basis to keep my job. You know, so in my mind, I was never the starting point guard. In my mind, I was just, you know what? I'm fighting to keep my job.
0: So you you did do you did do a good job because I don't know if fans remember, but you started 162 games over two seasons. It's not like you were a part time starter. <laughs> I mean, you started Yo, all oh, no. all 162 games those two years. You averaged almost 12 points a game. You you, you know, kid from Brooklyn. You grow up. You kind of mm-hmm. knock around. You're not you know you you after you leave Southern Idaho. I'm sure you were hoping things would turn out and happen a little faster, and they didn't. And you probably were—I'm just guessing—a little bit frustrated, wondering if you were going to get a shot. And now here you are, playing for the Lakers, starting. I, I mean, I—you know—you know—a kid who was shooting twenty-one in the playground and playing Utah—that that had to have been just just amazing.
1: No, it was definitely an amazing journey. Uh, looking back at it. It was a little uh, gut-wrenching because, like I said, nothing uh, was guaranteed. I didn't know on a night-to-night basis what was going to happen. So I, I was, like, literally fighting for my life every single night. I didn't, again, I didn't really get a chance to officially, officially enjoy the ride, which is unfortunate because, you know, I did, I, If you, uh, now that I look back on it now, I was starting at the starting point guard in the backcourt with a superstar, you no know, Hall of Famer, you know playing for a Hall of Fame coach, playing on the most historic franchise of NBA history in front of you know millions of people on a night night basis and and the coolest thing, the coolest part of that is you know it was l a and l a <laughs> is Hollywood, Hollywood is l a you know um, that's where all the actors and actresses and models, the people who actually you know entertain the world in their movies on the blue screen. They were there to be entertained by me. You know, you see, you know, Denzel Washington sitting courtside. You see Jack Nicholson sitting courtside every game. You see actresses and models walking around watching you, and they, they, they're there to be entertained by you, and these people entertain the world. And that was just a pretty cool experience.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I think the one thing that's, that's overlooked in your story is the fact that you persisted and persisted, and you 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 got there because of obviously you had a certain amount of talent but you, you it was hard work and persistent you didn't you didn't take no the first time they all said no you persisted sure. you did what you had to do and i mean that's what i admire in people is somebody who can take make 110% out of what their talent was now a little bit as i read your your story a little bit uh, disappointing is that uh, the big media wants to pay so much attention to some controversy, you know, you had with Kobe during that time. But to me, you know, the story is that you, a- you were able to persist and play, you know, a couple of years with the Lakers under Phil Phil Jackson. I mean, how do you see it? Does it frustrate you that people just want to know about run-ins with Kobe? I, I don't know how else to describe him.
1: Well, um, it's disappointing that my hard work what I've been able to achieve is overlooked by you know so, some negative views and comments and just just the whole negative the, the the negative feeling and connotation between you know a team teammates and then it really happened during the season no everything happened after the season um, but a, a lot of people miss miss they they miss the story. The story was I was a walk-on that started a hundred. How many games?
0: Hundred and sixty-two games. A
1: I started hundred and sixty-two games, the most uh, consecutive starts in the, in in the, in, uh, in those two seasons out of anybody in the NBA. I was a walk-on. I was like you know the, the like the Rocky story, like the underdog.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And, and people don't understand that I actually overachieved in the spot that I was I was put in. I didn't underachieve people, you know, act like, you know, the Lakers brought me in and they was paying me millions. I was getting MV. I was getting the league minimum <laughs> as a walk-on, you know, and I was, and I, and I, like you said, I averaged close to 12 points, 12 points, double figures on a, on a, uh, in a system offense where, you know, somebody, you know, a guy was taking 40 shots a game. I was the third option behind Kobe and Lamar Odom when I was a walk-on. I wasn't supposed to start, but I started whole two seasons.
0: Yeah, and Smush, I just love that story. That's why that's why I was trying to pull it out of you because I 100% agree with you. And I people, I know the people who listen to this podcast will understand it, uh, because a lot of small college parents, families, players listen to this. Small college play. You know, you went to Southern Idaho, right? So people who are at the non-name colleges tend to, and this is just my opinion, tend to play quite a bit harder because they feel like they have something to prove. They don't play entitled. They play hungry.
1: Of course, you know. To piggyback off of what you said, you know, we we do have something to prove, you know, because we are the underdogs. So you know, the red carpet wasn't rolled out for you know for a guy like me or players that go to you know uh, smaller universities or smaller colleges. We have something to prove. We have. I had. I had to prove to the world that I belonged on that big stage. That I was good enough to be a player, not only in the NBA, but starting in the NBA. And I had to, I had to, you know, bring it every night. Why? Because I was in the backcourt with one of the, you know, greatest basketball players of all time.
0: And my understanding, I think there's a record while you were at the Lakers for the highest scoring backcourt ever, the the most points out of the backcourt. I think ninety four or something.
1: Yes, uh, sir. So, yes, sir.
0: So you definitely accomplished something that a lot of people said probably Smush Parker will never accomplish this, but you put your head down you worked every day and you were able to do it one thing i'm i'm really curious about i asked you about playing in greece but you played in uh you played in china now basketball in china got a lot of attention when the uh the basketball uh tv rights thing came up that would be controversy a while back and i don't think people really understood how big uh basketball was in china Uh, talk to uh, talk talk to us about playing in china what was it like what are the fans like
1: okay playing in china that was a that was an interesting place to play in china because uh you know there's let's just say um just let's let's just say there's a million people in china just say there's a million people in china out of those million there's only one culture of people that live in china so if I was I felt like I was the only black face in or just a, a, like it, it was it, that that was that was more of a culture shock than me playing in Idaho. And I actually you know when I played in Idaho, I met people that never met a black person in real life before. So that's saying a lot. And one thing I learned about China, there's 180 different dialects of uh, Cantonese and Mandarin. Not even the Chinese understand themselves. People have <laughs> one. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. You'll have one uh, person saying one thing, and another interpret it a totally different way. I mean, it was, it was it's it was kind of uh, hilarious in a way, but it was difficult for me, for somebody who didn't speak any Mandarin or Cantonese, just trying to you know communicate with them uh, from my perspective, and they didn't understand themselves was uh, was uh, you know interesting.
0: You know, Swish, I I want to ask you about these other uh, you then then you went and you played in Russia. You really yes, went sir. around the globe, didn't you? What was unique about yes, playing in Russia?
1: Well, Russia. There's a few things that's interesting about Russia. One, they still they're still living in the 70s. <laughs> uh, when I say that, you know, I, uh, their Amtrak service or their trains, you know, are, are more uh, are still like stage coaches. Now, I've never seen a, a stagecoach in real life. I've only seen it in movies uh-huh. until I went to Russia. Until I went to Russia, they still travel um, in stage coaches on the trains, or where they they have like little uh, bedroom compartments. Uh, another interesting thing was that it snows there every day. The snow doesn't melt, but it snows every day. <laughs> okay. So I was literally, I was literally walking or traveling through, no exaggeration, like no exaggeration, five feet of snow every day, every day, five feet of snow.
0: Was it uphill? It was was it uphill both ways?
1: <laughs> uh <laughs> that's what it felt like yeah, that's what it felt like it was it was a you live a life in snow that's how it was for me in a, in a, uh in Russia
0: I just find these you didn't you played in in Iran
1: also for a while too yeah I played in a tournament in Iran oh, in okay yes sir that uh, was that was uh that was also interesting also because I was staying in the hotel unfortunately, this is the case but I was staying in the hotel in my room had uh, bullet holes in the wall oh my goodness yeah and I was uh I was a few feet from a building or buildings or blocks of, of, of uh, neighborhoods that were just blown to pieces
0: yeah. I mean, it really makes you look around and appreciate home doesn't it
1: oh yeah listen I definitely appreciate the little things um, here that the creature comforts of uh what we have here in the United States that I you know didn't look at before, like, you know, the little things like sidewalks, you know, pavement, concrete, like things like that, you go you travel to places like, you know, Africa, I was in Morocco and Tunisia, and I played in Angola, in these places, they don't have sidewalks, everybody, they walk around in dirt all day. Oh. And I'm not saying the whole country is that way. But just in, you know, most areas in, in those in those places, people walk and live in dirt. So when it rains, you know what dirt turns into right? mud.
0: You know, I think that's kind of, I think that's sad. You know, I grew up in a small town in Southern Oregon, and I know a lot of people just never get out of their home area. You know, maybe you never get too much away from about 300 miles from home, or uh, you grew up in uh, Brooklyn there, and I'm sure a lot of your friends probably never get out of the state of New York. And I always think that's sad when people don't have a chance to get out and, you know, see the, the at least the country and see the different cultures and people and get to know them. And you've had the opportunity to see it all, the, all around the world. What, yeah. Doing that and seeing everything from Iran to China, Russia, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Greece. What are one or two things that jump out in your mind about what you didn't know about your home, about Brooklyn or America? What are, what are one or two things that just jump out at you about uh, being outside the country?
1: To be honest, to be completely honest, to be completely honest, you know, um, one thing I, I, you know, I take away from my travels is that people who live outside of the of the United States are happier people than we are, and they, they and they have half the things that we have.
0: No, uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of that entitled thing in the United States.
1: Entitled, or you know, we just take things for granted. Like our, like their focus is not our focus and i'm not saying you know our focus is bad our our focus here is you know making a mighty dollar you no know, work you know and things like that our value system is different when you travel outside the state their value system is family so they value family they value spending time with family they uh value spending time with friends like in greece they have a um you know their lunch break is three hours what they call a siesta and, you know, again, it's bad for the, you know, the it, it showed is bad for the economy, Life's, as far as lifestyle is concerned and, you know, the, the longevity of their health and, you know, the, their life, those people are happy. They spend, it's called a siesta. They, they go out and they have a three-hour lunch where, where they're with their family and with their friends daily, you know, whether they're, you know, talking, joking, laughing, spending time with them. And th- th- that lifestyle is, is, you know, pretty great. And there's very little crime there. Uh, not saying that there is no crime, but there, you know, there's very little crime there. Here, you know, uh, we don't value family as much anymore, and you know, people are trying to, you know, outwork the next, outdo the next. Is you know, we have the survival of the fittest mindset. Only the strong survive. You know, if I don't get it, somebody else is going to get it. So uh-huh. let me work harder, and they we, we lose, we lose the value of spending time and enjoying family. It just it, it shows in how people are. You know, there's a lot of hate, there's a lot of crimes, there's a lot of, you know, um, negativity that's floating around. It's it's unfortunate, but that's one of the biggest things that I take away from, you know, my travels um, all ac- across the globe. And it's not just one place. I mean, I you know, Venezuela. I been in Venezuela, and it's a third world country. And I've seen people in tin huts that lived on the side of a highway, but yet and still they're happy. They're smiling, they're joyous, they're festive. And again, it's a third-world country. They don't have the halves that we have. And, you know, it's almost like a 22. Do you want that kind of lifestyle and happiness and but live that way? Or do you want to live in the creature comforts of the states and work and, you know, uh, you have food. I checked uh, food whenever you want it. You have stores, resources, things of, of, of that nature. I mean, I, you I don't know it's it's two different two different value systems but that's one of the biggest things that I take away that people outside of the states you know value their life and their family and happiness rather than you know their jobs
0: oh wow I I mean I love your perspective and too this is this is from a man who's been all over the world and and is telling you what he what he saw and, and you had quite a bit of access when you were in these countries I'm assuming as a as a basketball player, oh, yeah. you weren't uh, you know just in one neighborhood you you got out, you were able to get out and around and and see quite a bit i imagine
1: oh yeah, well, when you're playing somewhere you know for a season you know you're living somewhere you know for a year or six months or eight months you get out you don't you know it's not like a vacation where you go and you stay in a resort for a weekend and then you go home no, i lived in these places lived isolated by myself like I, I wasn't going to stay in the house and you know uh, twiddle my fingers you know all day and uh, play PS4 the whole time <laughs> I was there no the reason why I decided to go to these places is so is so I can learn so I can I can I can uh, experience and that's what I did I you know went out I drove around walked around you know I did uh, I you know I was, I was with the native I was with the native, so to say quote-unquote right understood
0: so tell us a little bit about what uh, you just stopped playing. You played for Albany not too long ago. Uh, what is life after basketball going to look for look like for Smush Parker? There's a a little bird has told me that uh, you're working at getting in the officiating game. Can can you talk about yes, that?
1: Sir. Yes, sir. So uh, right now, what I'm working on, I just uh, officially retired from the game of basketball about two and a half years ago. Uh, my last season of play was in uh morocco i am 38 now which means uh, that uh my 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 basketball career is uh on a decline it's been on a decline since i was 32. so i've been given you know uh, since since the age of 34 35 i was thinking about life after basketball what am i gonna do after basketball uh since you know i know basketball has a you know, a short lifespan, which, which I was learning. And I gave it some serious thought. And one thing that I have a passion for, you know, everybody asked me to go into coaching. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a passion for coaching. Now I have a, a, a passion for teaching. Like, it's it's a difference. Like, I, I like, I have, I have, a, I think I have a, a skill to teach skills, basketball skills, not so much coach a team and, you know, uh, try to bring, you know, a uh, bring up strategies on how to, you know, go about a season. I don't, I don't have that. But when it comes to like skills training, like teaching somebody, you know, uh, the proper jab step or what to look for in this uh, scenario, I could do that. But I didn't want to go in that direction. Um, But something did come up and that was uh, officiating. You know, um, it was something I did when I was actually uh, 13. It was something I did when I was 13 Also, uh, I was paid to, you know, uh, every Saturday morning to come in and referee the kids that were younger than me, the seven-year-olds, the 8 year old the nine-year-old games. And uh, full circle, it came back full circle. Here I am, you know, um, doing an officiating uh, thing again.
0: How, how in the world does one, obviously your name recognition is going to help, but how, what steps do you take to break into that field? How have you done that?
1: Well, one uh, because I played in the NBA, I have uh, I have access to uh, the uh, the National Basketball Players Association, and, and this is an association, or um, no, let's let's just say uh, let's just say a program where you know ex NBA basketball players can come in and talk to uh, uh, some guys, some women about you know what they want to go in, what field they want to go in after basketball, and then they'll help you research uh the direction or who to reach out to or which direction to go in so i I, that's what i did i went into this office um the players association office and told them what i wanted to do and they you know they put me on track they you know they introduced me to certain people that are already in that field and that put me in alignment with getting uh having that dream come true
0: well that's a great resource for former players i uh that's that's really great oh yeah um, that's awesome i want to ask you about one other thing you know we both know ian cunningham ian cunningham and <clears throat> kenny anderson who started a game or two in the nba as well uh they are <laughs> he's put his name to a showcase there in ohio and they invite uh, young men who because of their family situation uh either money wise or just time wise couldn't play aau ball you know that's a just a huge commitment for a family but because these mm-hmm. young men aren't Division One material, they prob- they got overlooked. Okay. They, they believe it's an underserved community. And uh, I understand uh, from Ian that if time works out, you're also going to try to attend uh, the Kenny Anderson Showcase as well.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, first, before anything, I want to shout out Ian Cunningham. Uh, great guy, great man of God. He's my brother in Christ. Um, I've known him for you know a long time. I've actually known him since 2002 um we didn't really you know uh spend as much time together back then as we do now but we ran in the same circles and we've just been in contact you know um since he's a great guy he has a great family and also shout out to kenny anderson you know also a new york guy queens queens uh born um those two guys and like you said you know kenny anderson played one or two games in the nba himself yeah. um, <laughs> Uh, but those two guys combined, you know, doing what they're doing for, you know, kids who are overlooked. And I don't want to say they're not D1 material because, again, I you know, was a, I am a product of, you know, guys who are overlooked. And look how, you know, look where I turned out. I turned out to be a, a good enough starter for the Los Angeles Lakers. And I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, highly recruited. And I only played one year of high school basketball and things like that. So they have. So these, there's, there, everybody has a different opportunity and uh, different situations that come up. And um, what Ian and Kenny Anderson is doing is is giving these guys a platform to showcase their skills when uh, a platform wasn't given to these kids, or maybe you know they just didn't have the, the right resources to you know uh, showcase their skills. They, they didn't live in the right neighborhoods or they didn't play for the right high school. So what they're doing is just giving. You know, these kids, you know, which is awesome. an opportunity to, um, you know, create, you know, a, a, a basketball professional basketball career out of out of nothing, you know, possibly, you know, whether they help them go to school or even, you know, go overseas or even make it to the pros. And and I just think it's, it, it's great. And that's why I want to support if I can. Like I said, if, like you said, if time permits, I'm definitely going to be there for that.
0: Well, I want to I want to join you in uh, giving the shout out to uh, Ian Cunningham. Uh, I don't believe things happen just by chance, but I had a kind of an accidental meeting with him, and he uh, got me interested in the Kenny Anderson Showcase. And I think what what is I agree with you a hundred percent. What they're doing there is is phenomenal, and uh, they help out some young men to get to school, uh, use their talents to uh, better themselves. Is the way I, uh, I've heard it put. Uh, but yes, uh, if anybody wants to know more about that Kenny Anderson showcase, you can uh, just type in Kenny Anderson showcase on Twitter, or you can go to at I a N C L E one at I a N C L E one. And that's Ian Anderson's Twitter. Or if you can't find any of that, just uh, go to cascade hoops talk on Twitter and I'll cascade hoop talk on Twitter and I'll make the connection, but you should be able to find it under Kenny Anderson showcase. Well, Smush, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, today. Uh, really great talking to you. I enjoy your story. I a very, very interesting life up to this point, point. As you're, and you're only 38. You're young. I'm
1: only 38. Am I young? I don't feel young. That's what put some years on my body.
0: <laughs> well, at least, at least you didn't have to play with that square basketball like we had to when I was young, up at the playground oh, in yeah. the 60s.
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I've seen pictures and I heard about those stories.
0: <laughs> hey, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Maybe we'll get to talk to you again in the future. But uh, uh, thanks again for th- taking the time and sharing your story, Smush.
1: Bill, thanks for having me. You know, uh, if I if you want me on the show again on a podcast, just you know say the word. I'm there. It was great. Thanks for, again for having me and uh, giving me the platform to share my story. Okay. Thank you.